to Wrestling with God Show, the podcast where we grapple with big questions about faith, religion, and life. I'm Irish McMahon, and I am really happy to announce the hiatus is over. Father Len is back. Hey, Father Len, we have truly missed you. Well, thank you. That's really sweet. Too much contact with me encourages a need to be away. So is that the main reason you've been away? You're afraid you're going to drive people away by being around too much? Yeah, my people can enjoy my presence a lot more when I'm gone. Well, I'm glad you're back. I really am, and I know our listeners are too. I've gotten lots of feedback wondering when or if you'd be back. So it's great to have you back, Father Len. And we hope these breaks that you're talking about in the future, aren't long and don't happen very often. So, Father Len, our question today comes from my daughter. She grew up a Catholic, though not very well catechized by me and my wife. Sadly, our faith was not much more than a Sunday habit, going to Mass. She's no longer a member of the Church, but thankfully she is a devout Christian. She's a member of one of these non-denominational churches. So I was having coffee with her the other day, and I decided to wade into the whole Catholic thing with her. You know, why she's not a Catholic. It's something I've kind of shied away from for quite a while. So I jumped right in. I asked her straight away, what are some of the problems you have with the Catholic Church? And without hesitation, she said, the priesthood. She said, you know, Dad... If you read St. Paul's letter to the Hebrews, it says Jesus abolished the priesthood. He's our high priest now, and we don't need any other priests. So I just can't buy into this whole priesthood thing of the Catholic Church. Yeah, great. I I love that question. So you can help me out with this. Yes. However, since it is called wrestling with God, you know, there's going to be a little bit of a contact here. So... I don't mean, I'm just warning, don't mean to offend anybody, but, you know, you throw something else, I want to wrestle it to the ground. So I I don't mean to offend her or you, but she is right in one sense. The letter of Hebrew is about the superiority of the new covenant of Christ over the old covenant of Moses. But here's my problem with what she said. She's interpreting, I'll explain this, she's interpreting a whole theology off of a a half of a sentence, a phrase. And to interpret it that way, you have to ignore the entire Old Testament prophecy and parts of the New Testament, major parts of the New Testament, just to have that interpretation. So you think it's a specific phrase in the letter to the Hebrews that's affecting her view of the priesthood? So what do you think that phrase is? About the, well, in the letter of Hebrews, about the superiority of Christ as our high priest. Okay. That is true. I mean, I'm not arguing she's right on that. Christ is our high priest, but you have to ignore how what the priesthood means. And here's, here's going to be my conclusion, so a little bit of warning. What she's really mindset of is very anti-institutional. It's part of this really modern trend of being anti-institutional. So the letter of Hebrews explains the superiority of the priesthood of Christ after the order of Melchizedek 
over the old covenant priesthood of Aaron. But she seems to think that the priesthood of Christ does away with all the priesthood. Nowhere does it say yet that Aaron was a high priest in the Old Testament, and he was a source of priesthood for other priests. It didn't delete other priests to have Aaron as a high priest. The same with Christ. Christ is our high priest, but you see that he uses all this priestly language with the 12 apostles. He makes them priests. Just because you have a high priest doesn't mean that there aren't other priests. And here, the prophecy of the Christ would start a new priesthood. It doesn't say, the prophecies doesn't say he'll eliminate the priesthood. It says he'll start a, a new priesthood. If there's prophecies about a new priesthood, then it's not saying that all the priesthood would be deleted, just that it'd be changed. So uh, the prophecies of the Christ, you have this, the Christ will be a new Moses. And as a new Moses, there'll be a new Exodus and a new Passover and the bread of life will return. And there'll be a new promised land and a new priesthood. So the new Exodus is really the cross. The new Holy Land is not Israel, it's heaven. And yeah, there's a new priesthood. So just as Moses creates a hierarchical priesthood, so will the Christ start a new priesthood. And the prophecy is open it up to Gentiles and it will spread throughout the world. Now, just to understand what I mean, that for her to interpret that way, you have to ignore the whole Old Testament history of priesthood. So I'm just going to go through that, okay? Okay. So the Garden of Eden is pictured as a temple in the first creation story. So just some hints. Like Eden was a place where Adam walked and talked with God. But that's those Hebrew words for God's walking back and forth, quote unquote, in the Garden of Eden also describes God's presence in the tabernacle in Leviticus. Or when it says that uh, God placed Adam in the garden to, quote, cultivate and keep it, the two Hebrew words for cultivate and keep are really should be translated serve and guard. And when these two words occur together in the Old Testament, without exceptions, they have meanings that refer to serve and guarding um, the word of God 10 times, and then most often to serve and guard God in the temple to prevent unclean things from entering. That's liturgical priestly language. And the clothes that God gives Adam and Eve that they're wearing, actually, and if you look in Ezekiel, it's liturgical garb. And Adam is pictured as a failed priest. Adam is, first of all, in the Garden of Eden, he all the language is that he's a priest, but Adam is a failed priest. He failed to guard the temple by sinning and letting an unclean, his sin, defile the temple. So Adam loses his priestly role, role, and two cherubs take over the responsibility. So Adam is a failed priest. Now, there's more parallels, but you get the point. So humanity was supposed to have this priesthood right from the Garden of Eden. So outside the Garden of Eden, during the time of Abraham, God gives instructions that the firstborn acts as a priest. And it was passed down father to son. So you have the 
priesthood of the firstborn. So that's kind of interesting. And then, and this gets really weird. Then you have this priest that shows up in the Old Testament named Melchizedek. And he's really strange because he blesses Abraham. And think about this. It's so strange because this is the part that's strange. It says that he's the high priest of Yahweh. Well, that should strike you as really strange because Abraham was the beginning of religion. If Abraham was the first religious character, right, the beginning of monotheism, the beginning of faith, where the heck did this high priest of Yahweh come from? And think about this. The name Yahweh is not even going to be revealed until Moses, hundreds and hundreds of years later. And so the name Yahweh will not be revealed, and priesthood of Moses won't happen until Moses. So why in Abraham do you have this high priest? And it says that he has no lineage, no mom or dad, no end of days. And he's the king of the city of peace, Salam, Jerusalem. And it says he's the first king of righteousness. Well, he's the king of Jerusalem before Jerusalem is even built as a city. And this happens a thousand years. And how does God bless? How does this high priest bless the beginning of religion? with bread and wine, by offering bread and wine. And Abraham gives a tenth, a tithe, a tenth of his belongings to the high priest. Well, you only tithe to God. So and it's a way saying you have this divine figure. So in the letter of Hebrews, St. Paul gets it. He says, ah, Melchizedek is this image of what Christ is, the high priest. And so like the scenes at the time of Jesus, this monastic order, they believed that this mysterious priestly figure, uh, the original priest, that is superior to the Levitical priesthood because it's ancient, more ancient than the priesthood that comes from Moses. And the scenes rightly believe that the Jerusalem priesthood had become corrupt. And they interpret the prophecies, they collected all the prophecies that the Christ would be a new high priest in the order of Melchizedek. They believed that this priest, Melchizedek, would come and purify the temple. So St. Paul is echoing this theme in Hebrew that is found in the scenes and declaring that Christ is the Melchizedekian priesthood that's superior to the Levitical priesthood that Moses started. The letter of Hebrew says that Melchizedek was out without father or mother and has no reported end of days. Well, who does that sound like? It's a foreshadowing of Christ. And that's an eternal priesthood. And Christ is the eternal high priest. So he says, yeah, the, the Jewish priests, they could sprinkle blood and, and offer sacrifice. But Christ is the original high priest in the order of Melchizedek. The Levitical priest couldn't save. But Melchizedek, at the right hand of God, he could save us. Christ can save us. So you had this hope that the true priest, the Christ, who blessed the beginning of monotheism, would come back and purify religion. So that was always the hope from the time of Abraham. But then hundreds of years later, you have Moses. And at Sinai, God starts the Levitical priesthood to help Moses out. Aaron is the brother of Moses, and Moses makes him the first high priest. So all high priests are supposed to be related, uh, aligned from Aaron, and only the firstborn son could become a high priest. 
The other sons could become priests, but not a high priest. A high priest has to be direct descendant from father to firstborn son. Well, Jesus, and this is important, he's not of the tribe of Levi. He's of the tribe of Judah. So he could never be a Levitical priesthood. But anyhow, so it's God who starts the Levitical priesthood. But remember, God saves the people, says, listen, I want you to be a nation of priests. But Aaron, Aaron the high priest and his descendants will serve as ministerial priests. So everybody's a priest, returning back to the Adam and Eve. But you have these ministerial priests who serve. But after they're free, you have this thing called Korak's Rebellion. Now, I don't know why more Protestants, if they say they follow the Bible, have they never read the story of Korak? And most Christians don't, but it's an important story to know. Tell us the Korak story. I'm not familiar with it, and I suspect many of our listeners aren't either. So Korak challenges Moses and Aaron's leadership, and he says, now, wait a minute. God made us a nation of priests. We're all priests. God wants a kingdom of priests. So remember, everybody, it's, there was supposed to be a kingdom of priests, but Aaron was ministerial priesthood. So Korak says, any of us could be leader. So any of us could be. Well, that's exactly the same eerie parallel argument that your daughter is making, that well, anybody can lead. So uh, Moses responds to the challenge of Korak. He says, well, maybe you're right. So if you really bet this, let's test this out. And so he says, okay, we'll have two groups, Aaron's priests and you. And your group will offer a sacrifice of incense and so will Aaron. Whichever sacrifice God accepts will signal the approval of in this dispute. And sure enough, when Korak offers his incense, uh, the ground swallows him alive, him and all his men and family and possessions, it says. And then fire comes down from heaven and incinerates him. That's what God thinks of that argument. And in response, God told Moses, gather staffs from the 12 tribes, the leaders of the 12 tribes, and put them outside the, the tabernacle. And whichever staff blooms means that's why I choose as a leader. So Moses returns the next day, and behold, Aaron's staff, the Levite staff, had bloomed. But that's not the end of the story. God tells Moses, leave Aaron's staff there in front of uh, the tabernacle as a sign of rebellion. Every generation, when they see the bloom staff, are supposed to realize, no, God does choose empower certain people to be leaders of a nation of priests. It's not that Moses and Aaron were sinless, but clearly God wants ministerial priests in the Old Testament. And you do not get to select yourself just because you feel like, well, I should be a leader. That's a Korax rebellion. So in Judaism, in the Old Testament, you don't get to say, well, I just have chosen to be a priest. You have to be chosen. And the bloom staff, like Joseph has a bloom staff. The symbol of the staff is a symbol of leadership. That's why Joseph carries a staff that's blooming or bishops carry a staff that, yeah, God does seem to want a structured worship and a structured leadership. But Protestants think like Korak, that, well, anybody can worship. But 
the whole point of it is this reminder that priesthood and worship was not to be made up. It's established by God. So like, here's when people say, well, I don't believe in organized religion. My response is really because God does. Look in the Old Testament. Protestants reject priesthood and overemphasize, they, they reject ministerial priesthood and overemphasize the priesthood of all the believers. We'd say, well, no, as Catholics, we have both, just like in the Old Testament and just like the New Testament. So there's these prophecies that when the Christ comes, the Christ will be a king, but the Christ will also be high priest. So the shocking part is that the Christ will do away with the Levitical priesthood. So, you know, there's that famous line when he gets to Jerusalem and he points to the priests and he says that line that says, you have made my father's house a den of thieves. And then after that, the priests gather together and say, oh, he's going to die for this. We're going to kill him. Why are they in? So Jesus said a lot of things. Why does that thing just push him over the edge? Because that line, you have made my father's house a den of thieves is connected to the prophecy that when the Christ comes, he will do away with the Levitical priesthood and start a new priesthood. That's what really upsets him, not the insult that he's calling him thieves. What he's saying is, your priesthood is coming to the end. I'm starting a new one. And that's when they, oh, no, you're not taking away our power. We'll kill you. So if Jesus didn't want to start a new priesthood, fulfilling all the prophecies that Christ would welcome Gentiles as priests. Why does, ask your daughter this, why does he use so much priestly language? Like at the Last Supper, when he says, do this in remembrance of me, the word do in the Greek word is a verb that is only used for the priestly action of sacrifice. The do in the Greek, we translate it offer, but it's only used liturgically. Or when he says, remember, Zechariah and Anesis, once again, that's priestly sacrificial language specific to priestly worship. Or in John chapter 20, he transfers to the apostle his power to forgive sins. He says, peace be with you as a father has sent me, so I send you. What was Christ sent to do? Forgive sins. And then it says he breathed on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you retain them, they're retained. Notice, Jesus sets up so that the forgiveness of sins is received through the ministry of the apostles. So from the words of Christ, it's clear that the apostles had authority on whether to forgive or not forgive. If Jesus wanted to just do away with all the priesthood, Why does he keep using priestly language for worship, for forgiveness of sins, even anointing the sick? Priests were charged with anointing people in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, the apostles continue the practice of anointing. Mark says they Christ sent them out to anoint the sick. The letter of James says, are there sick among you? Let them send for the priests of the church and the priests will anoint them with oil. And anyhow. Okay. So what you're saying is the priesthood Jesus did away with is the Levitical priesthood. Right. He did away with the Old Testament priesthood. He didn't do away with priesthood completely. That would make no sense. So Jesus had a couple of reasons for ending the Levitical priesthood. It was corrupt. 
And Jesus wanted to expand the priesthood and the church to everybody, including the Gentiles. Right, and spread it throughout the world, not one little place, Jerusalem. So that's a prophecy. So my, my point being is that, well, if that's all the prophecies, if that's how Christ treated the 12 apostles, why would you interpret it, that letter of Hebrews, that Christ is doing away with all priests? If he's doing away with all priests, then why did God give the prophecies? Why did you say, you know, that he's going to send out priests throughout all the world? She would have to look at that half a sentence, because the whole paragraph is one sentence, and puts a lot of weight, and you have to blind yourself to the rest of the gospel. And even in the New Testament, you had the laying on of hands in Timothy. You have in Acts, the laying on of hands. The laying on of hands is a very Jewish way of ordaining priests. So in Acts, in Timothy, in the letters of Paul, Paul writes about these ordinations, continuing the ministry of the apostles. You know, the gift that was given through the laying on of hands. That's priesthood. And he says to Titus, make sure the priests respect your authority. This is not, well, everybody just start their own church theology. I just want to start my own church. Uh, That doesn't make any sense. Why would Paul say that? Why would Paul say, make sure they uh, respect your authority? We laid hands on you if everybody gets to start their own church. So why do you think this teaching was lost when there's a divine commissioning from Christ? And even like in the in Jude, in the letter of Jude, Jude mentions Korak's rebellion. Woe to them who, who perished at Korak's rebellion. Jude is warning against rebelling against the priesthood. And this is during New Testament times. Or the prophecy of Malachi and incense. The prophecy of Malachi is that the Gentiles will come to worship Christ. From the rising of the sun to its setting, God's name will be great among the Gentiles. Every place will have this offering. Well, that, that really speaks about the Catholic Church. The priests who are offering Eucharist all around the world, not just Jerusalem. And yeah, we have fulfilled that prophecy. Or if she believes that all priesthood is done away with, why, why did, in Acts did they replace Judas with Matthias? Because in Acts 1, the apostles cast lots. That's a very Jewish way of selecting a priest to replace Judas. We have no more priests. Why cast lots to replace it? If the apostles believe there's no need for priests anymore, why select a replacement for Judas the same way Old Testament priests were selected? If all are priests and you don't need a ministerial priesthood, why did they select Matthias. St. Paul calls his work a priestly work. The word that he used is actually, it's a reference to Jewish, uh, the word means uh, the work that Jewish priests did in the Old Testament. It's never used for the work that the priesthood of all the believers did, only the ordained priesthood. So clearly, St. Paul doesn't believe that Jesus has done away with the ministerial priesthood, St. Paul is emphasizing that the ministerial priesthood gets all their power from the high priest, Christ, the same way all Jewish priests got their power from the high priest, Aaron. And even like this, I just love this stuff, but, you know, in the New Testament, you have this story, right, of 
John the Baptist and Jesus meeting at the water. But think about what that really means, because the high priest at the time of Jesus wasn't a firstborn son, uh, wasn't uh, a properly high priest. Rome wanted to control religion. So Rome selected the high priest, didn't follow the high priest who was selected, you know, Caiaphas. Technically, he shouldn't be high priest. And so you have these prophecies that the Christ would start this new priesthood. So there's going to be a change in priesthood, an end to the Aaronic priesthood and the beginning to Christ priesthood. So where in the Bible do you see when the priesthood of Christ is transferred, when the passing of the torch between the old and the new, where there's this transfer, a blessing from the old priesthood to the new priesthood. You know where you see it? In John the Baptist. Yeah, temple priests were known to be incredibly corrupt. The high priest was corrupt, shouldn't be high priest. But you know, it's kind of funny. When you read John the Baptist, John the Baptist is the firstborn son from a line of priests. His mother comes from a priestly line and his father does. That would not be Caiaphas. That's John the Baptist. He's born of the line of Aaron. His parents both had priestly blood. His priesthood was the only one announced by an angel in the Holy of Holies. He was a firstborn. So John the Baptist qualifies for a high priest. And what's the job of a high priest? To cleanse people from their sins. That's what John the Baptist is doing at the waters of Jordan, forgiving people's sins. So he fits the ironic high priest. And think about this. When Jesus meets John, it's as if two high priests stand face to face. The old priest, John the Baptist, bearing witness and declaring greater Christ priesthood. And remember, for Levitical priesthood, it began with water as Moses washed Aaron in cleansing. So again, water is brought up of the new priesthood. When Jesus is plunged in the water, like if you know how Aaron's priesthood came about, that's how it, uh, how it started. Now you have the, the, the old priest of the Old Testament passing the torch to the high priest, Christ. So Christ, yeah, Christ is a, a priest. He's the first high priest of the New Testament. So if Jesus didn't want to create a new priesthood, fulfilling the prophecies of welcoming Gentiles, once again, why does he use so much priestly language? If all God wanted to do is wipe away the priesthood, why did for thousands and thousands and thousands of years in the Old Testament, did he get used to us using priests, having priestly language, having priestly theology? It's not to delete it all. It's to evolve it. So Christ is the high priest, the Lamb of God. He offers bread and wine, just like Melchizedek. He cures people, cures them, and then tells them to go to the priest. What he's doing is showing that there's a shortcut to cure, not going through the priest asking God, but he has a superior high priesthood. So Jesus did not just start the priesthood of all believers in baptism. He also started, like Moses, a ministerial priesthood that started with the 12. Because remember, he had hundreds of disciples. A disciple is somebody who follows Jesus. But then he chooses 12, picks them, to lead the rest. If 
like your your daughter's idea is that well jesus did away with a hierarchy really then why didn't he make everyone apostles everybody could be disciples but only 12 and only 12 could be apostles that's why the letter of hebrews said that christ is a high priest there is no other priesthood than christ's priesthood we're all baptized into his priesthood. Catholics, when they're baptized, every Catholic that baptized is anointed as a priest at their baptism. But then there continues later a ministerial priesthood that Christ started. Okay, so all Catholics are anointed as priests at their baptism. We're all priests. And Jesus is our high priest, and you are a ministerial priest. So for all priests, what does that mean? What is our role, and what is the role of a ministerial priest like you, and what is your relationship with all the other priests like me? Okay, so I do love this. For every Catholic who's baptized, after you're baptized, you are literally anointed priest, prophet, and king. So every Catholic is anointed as a priest. But when I say that, it doesn't mean wearing robes and stuff. It returns us back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were priests. Their job was, and it uses all this priestly language, their job was to care for the world and consecrate the world to God. They were to use their gifts to guard and keep the garden. So what a priest does is build bridges to God In one sense. So returning back to that Adam and Eve image in paradise, we're meant to bring the holy out in creation. So anybody who's baptized, they are baptized to care for the garden, not just the earth, but the family of God and to consecrate all the gifts of God back to God. Priests offer gifts to God. So like you, with your sultry, chocolate... (laughs) jazz sounding voice um (laughs) that's one of the gifts that you're offering back i see make an offering to god and you offering your talents it does it's supposed to work to bring the garden of eden back paradise back that all of us offering our gifts all of us consecrating what we have to god and the human family so i'm an ordained priest So I offer gifts for the entire community, but every Catholic is a priest that offers a gift to God. My role is just to lead the priesthood the same way you always have somebody in the Bible leading. Christ had many disciples, but he only had 12 apostles. So he had hundreds of disciples, but he chose 12 as leadership. So when somebody says, well, we're all priests, that is absolutely true. but If you remember the rebellion of Korak, that doesn't mean that God doesn't choose some people as leaders among the priests. So like when people say, well, I don't believe in organized religion. Really? Jesus does. Judaism is an organized religion. Jesus never spoke out against organized religion. He spoke out against corruption within religion. But Christ clearly wanted a church structure. So, you know, those who say, I don't believe in organized religion, really, Jesus did. Jesus wanted to have a church with structure, apostles and disciples. And so, yeah, like, we do believe in the priesthood of all the baptized. 
So like uh, the letter of Peter mentions that. But here's my point. And that was so important that every priest can trace their ordination, the laying on of hands, back to one of the 12 apostles. And we know from early church documents, they took that very serious. So no offense, when people like your daughter object and say, well, you know, there's only one priest. Yeah, there's one mediator, Christ. And only through Christ is there this bridge. Christ is acting as a high priest, but nowhere does it say that there aren't any other priests. So when a priest baptizes and says, I baptize, that's not I, me, Len McMillan. It's Christ who baptizes. It's the high priest who acts through other priests. Mm -hmm. So my priesthood is not in competition with Christ's high priesthood. That's what your daughter seems to be saying, that somehow I'm competing with Christ. No, my priesthood flows from Christ. It's the I is not me, it's Christ. You know, listening to her talk about it, what I think she's thinking and feeling is the priesthood gets in the way of her relationship with Jesus somehow, like this unnecessary barrier that she believes Jesus doesn't want between her and him. And we would say, there's not a barrier. The Holy Spirit's right in you. Christ sets up this ministerial priesthood to serve. And if you look at the New Testament, that's what they're doing. They're not interfering with people's relationship with Christ. They're serving it. And like in in business, uh, business organization, they have this phrase of flat organization versus extreme bureaucracy. So a flat organization is we're all going to be like some leaders like we're all equals here. We're (laughs) all equals. That's a flat leaderless. You know, clearly there's always a leader in every business, right? But a flat one means it's less leadership. And the opposite is a complete monarchy that has this complicated bureaucracy. Well, in organizational business, both extremes whether it's a completely flat organization or extremely bureaucratic, monarchical type, really become leaderless in a way. And so in the 19th century, Baptists really promoted kind of this flat organization. And no offense to Baptists, but like if you were Methodist or Presbyterian, you had to go through years of training and education. Baptists, there's no training that... If you just wanted to start your own church, you go right ahead. There you go. And so later that kind of evolved into non-denomination. So non-denomination, it gives the appearance of flatness that we're all equal, right? But then why do they call their pastors pastors, which is shepherd? Because we'd say Christ says there's only one shepherd, Christ. So how dare they call any of their leaders pastors? Doesn't that interfere with Christ being the true shepherd? And of course, you'd say no. But if you examine them who say, oh, no, we don't believe in priesthood. Well, if you're a shepherd, those shepherds live pretty darn nice. Really look at, examine those non-denominational churches. They don't live like the sheep. And their authority, they have more authority than I do or a bishop does in the Catholic church. Usually some pastor of one of those non-denominational churches, they have all authority. Even my little, my little parish here, I don't have that. No bishop has that. Not even the Pope has that. 
they have really uh, it's an authority structure. They love to announce that, oh, no, we don't interfere. It's a flat hierarchy. And yet they have complete control. So we'd say, well, no, our blueprint comes from the Bible itself. We're, yeah, yeah, we're all priests. But yeah, there's... Um, there's a hierarchy. Yeah, and it's really, it's only three levels. The priesthood of all the believers, uh, ministerial priests, and bishops. Pretty, pretty flat. And you know what it really is? It's really not about the Bible. So even though I've just spoken for a couple minutes on the Bible... It's not about priesthood or that half a sentence in the letter of Hebrew. You know what it is? It's a change in the expectation of institution that we as a culture in the United States are very anti-institutional. And yeah, that's part of the United States. But think about this. Institutions form people's character. So if you go to a university, it's an institution that helps form your intellect. If you go into the military, the military is an institution that forms you into self-discipline and honorable service. So the church, yeah, it's an institution that forms you out of selfishness, out of the selfishness of individualism to be part and connected to other people. And your expectations of somebody who's gone through an institution is higher, not lesser. If, if I hire an engineer, I want them to go through an institution of years of education, not capriciously say, well, I feel like an engineer, so I'm an engineer. <laughs> I would not trust whatever he builds. I expect an accountant to actually be detailed and know the deliberations. That's going through an institution of an education. Those who went through an uh, institution, we have higher expectations from. And yet there's this deep contempt for people. If you think about it, there's this deep contempt for people who haven't gone through an institution yet claim institutional power. And what I want to mention is, like, uh, have you heard of stolen valor? I have. I know the term. I'm not sure I could explain it. Stolen valor is people who love to dress up as military, even though they've never served in the military. And you could say, well, why would they want to do that? Well, for affirmation or like getting on a plane. There's this video you can go to where... This guy dresses up in Navy SEAL paraphernalia, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just so that he can get free drinks at the airport bar and get onto the airplane first. And he's there, and there's some real Navy SEALs there, but they're not dressed in all that. And they, I don't understand. If you're a Navy SEAL, your insignias and stuff all mean stuff, but oh. his was out of order. And so they go over and they start asking, why is that there? That's, that's not right. Where did you serve? And see, so I'm going to cuss, but it's a great video where they get upset. And they said, this is stolen honor. You take that shit off. You did not go through the institution of the military. So think about this. There's this deep contempt for those who wear a Marine uniform, but never served or sacrificed. They're not part of that institution, and they have no right to claim the honor that comes from going through that institution. It's 
unearned honor, stolen valor. You're not part of the institution. So that's why they said you have to earn the right to wear that. Now, I think you can be a maverick only after you've gone through the institution. Otherwise, you're just posing. And so take the example of like Mars Hill, this huge, huge, huge mega church. You know, it's this pop-up church. And at one point, he brags. He says, you know, I never even went to church. I never was trained. I never had any theological training. It just hits me one day. And he starts this big mega church. It comes a millionaire, uh, has no theological creed, no theological training. And yet he imposed a type of authority and dictatorship that is stolen honor. Those pop-up pastors, they want the social capital of the ministerial priesthood without the education, without the years of service. They're like the guys at airports who dress up in Marine uniforms just for the free drinks and front line on getting in an airport. But it's stolen valor. You know, he says, I never went to school, minister. I didn't even go to church. And people love the outsider because... I guess somehow that's more authentic if you're an outsider. But who would go to a doctor who brags and says, you know, I I never went to medical school or served medicine. And would you trust their medical advice? And so, like, here's the thing. Your daughter, in my opinion, she was seduced by somebody with stolen valor. And I know this sounds insulting, but, oh, wow, stolen valor. You don't, you want to put down institutional priesthood. And yet I guarantee he has more uh, bureaucratic power over his pop-up church, non-denominational thing, than any other ministerial priesthood. Because if you belong to an institution, there's accountability and regulation. It's not perfect. We know that. There's a lot of corruption. But there's far more corruption in these pop-up churches where I am the sole dictator. And the irony is it's such a flim-flam to say, well, you know, they, they're the pastor and they have, like Mars Hill, complete power over everything. And yet they act like that and then say, we don't believe in institutional priesthood. Everybody's a priest. Then why do they have so much power? Why do they claim the title pastor as a shepherd if we're all sheep? And so how your daughter interprets it, you have to ignore major, major parts of the old, you know, the entire Old Testament, major parts of the New Testament to say, oh, no, all there is is the high priest Christ, and that's all there is. Nowhere in the Bible does it say he's deleted all the priesthood. It's just done away with the Old Testament priest. Our original state in the Garden of Eden is we're all meant to be priests. Then outside the garden, there is this higher priesthood, this eternal priesthood, Melchizedek, who blessed the beginning of religion. That began religion. To get the people organized and serve God, God created Aaron's priesthood. God ordained that. But that was not meant to last. That was just preparing for the true high priest, Christ. It was never meant to last. The true high priest of Christ is the one that's going to last. There's always been a high priest, even in Judaism. But just because you have a high priest, it doesn't mean that you don't have other priests. 
like the whole nation were priests. So we'd say, well, every baptized person is a priest. But there's a high priest, there's a ministerial priesthood, and there's the priesthood of all the believers. One is not higher than the other. My ministerial priesthood doesn't make me superior. It makes me a servant to the other priests. I serve all the other priests, the priests of the baptized. I dedicate my life to lead them to get closer and closer to Christ. But I have no power. My power flows from the high priest, Christ. So, like, no offense. It's your daughter, I think she drank the Kool-Aid and can't see the irony that the Bible itself doesn't support her interpretation of a half a sentence. But she drank the Kool-Aid because she already is anti-institutional. Now, hopefully your daughter won't punch me in the face. I'm worried that she takes after her mother. You know, Father Lynn, if my wife listens to this episode, I might be more concerned about her punching you in the face. You did a pretty good job of maligning her character. And you know, the odd part is she's the nice one of the two of you. (laughs) Well, then why did you do that? I guess you were just having fun, huh? I just like to throw people under the bus. Yes, you do. It's my joy. (laughs) Well, you did a good job. So we welcome your comments and questions for Father Len. It's easy to get those to us. You can just shoot me an email. My address is irish at www.gproductions.org. That's irish at www.gproductions.org. Or you can text or leave me a voicemail at 208-391-3738. That's 208-391-3738. This podcast is created and distributed by Wrestling With God Productions. Our theme music is composed and performed by Jake Einick and Kevin Barnett. The lifeblood of Wrestling With God Productions comes from generous donors who support our mission. If you've benefited from one of our podcasts, please consider making a financial donation at givesendgo.com slash WWG Productions. That's givesendgo.com slash WWG Productions. Thanks for your support. So we hope you join us next time as we continue our journey climbing the mountain of life, searching for truth, meaning, and purpose in our lives all the while offering gratitude for the priests in our lives. Thanks for listening. See you next time.